0: we ever fix our roads, highways, and bridges? And what will happen if we don't? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Infrastructure is key to the economic vitality of the nation, yet for too long we have let it crumble and fall behind the needs of passengers and freight alike. The issue of paying for maintenance and new construction of highways has gotten tangled in the debate over taxation and the role of federal government in our lives. Ideological battles have brought Congress to a virtual standstill. Meanwhile, the Highway Trust Fund teeters on bankruptcy, saved only by a series of temporary funding measures. We've reached the point where our position in global trade could be jeopardized by a transportation system that can't handle future freight flows. My guest today, Leslie Blakey, makes the case for a long-term approach to the crisis. She is President and Executive Director of the Coalition for America's Gateways and Trade Corridors. She talks about the various ideas for revitalizing the nation's infrastructure, as well as the political realities that must be confronted. So here is my conversation with Leslie Blakey. Leslie Blakey, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: We're going to be talking about infrastructure today, which is a big concern of yours, of course, in your position as president and executive director of the Coalition for America's Gateways and Trade Corridors. Why is it so important that we be having this discussion about infrastructure?
1: Well, it's particularly important when we think of how small the world is in terms of marketing goods and services uh, and how the growth of, of world markets in foreign countries is going to be such a huge part of our future. If we do not invest in infrastructure to support our economic goals in reaching world markets, we will be left behind by other countries that are investing at much, much rapid, more rapid rates than we are. Uh, to give you an example of that, the United States is only investing something around or less than 2% of our GDP in infrastructure Uh, and not all of that to support our goods movement, uh, to, throughout the United States and to other markets. If you compare that to, uh, the, uh, uh, European Union, which is investing around 4%, uh, China is investing 9%, even our competitors to the north and south in North America, uh, Canada and Mexico are investing uh, well above 3 to 4% in their infrastructure. So we are really losing out by uh, comparison to other uh, parts of the world that are trying to attract business, attract new uses of capital to their countries, and investing in uh, the manufacturing and uh, related opportunities that grow jobs.
0: So what are the consequences? Describe the uh, the scope of the problem in the United States today with regard to the state of transportation infrastructure.
1: Particularly uh, in goods movement transportation. Obviously, we have issues with moving people, and some of these overlap with goods movement, such as highways where we have very congested roads uh, with trucks caught up in the traffic as well as passenger vehicles. So those are things that people experience in many places every day. But what they don't see so much of is the congestion around our ports, around our transfer facilities where you transfer uh, carloads, containers, truckloads from one mode to another. And uh, those kinds of bottlenecks, congestion points can cause a uh, a particularly time-sensitive cargo to be delayed, even ruined in transit. It can also cause the cost of the transportation to go up significantly. It can cause just-in-time manufacturing to be delayed, and and even uh, a a delay of a few hours can cause a factory to have to shut down, uh, send workers home, and things of this nature. There is an an old uh, adage about transportation uh, in the United States that gives an example of this, which is that it takes two days to send a shipment from Los Angeles to Chicago and four days to get it across the city of Chicago. So when we're talking about bottlenecks and and congestion, it can be a very significant added cost, which actually drives up uh, the cost to consumers and drags down our competitive capabilities.
0: Have you seen a credible figure out there that estimates the amount of money that is really needed to fix our infrastructure and to create necessary new construction?
1: There is no comprehensive number that I have ever seen on this, although I do believe that the Department of Transportation is working on that under the National Freight Strategic Plan. That uh, National Freight Strategic Plan was mandated under the last surface transportation authorization bill called MAP-21 and is uh, due out, I think, in about another year. So hopefully they may have an estimate of this, but we certainly do know that the cost runs in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Among our own coalition members, in a survey that was done almost 10 years ago, we found that our our own members alone, which was really a fraction of the all the freight needs that are throughout the United States, we had something on the neighborhood of $50 billion in freight needs, and that was 10 years ago, again, among a small cluster of projects. So I'm quite confident in saying that we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars in freight needs that will um, both improve the efficiency of freight, but also mitigate impacts on communities that have to bear the congestion and the air uh, quality impacts from freight movement. So it isn't just a question of trying to get infrastructure improved, to speed it along or to make a link where there isn't one, but there's also issues that we have to deal with, things like um, greenhouse gases and uh, low-level particulate matter.
0: By the way, what kinds of entities uh, are members of the coalition?
1: We have uh, all kinds of freight-related organizations, both public and private. We have uh, things like uh, ports and uh, infrastructure projects. We have metropolitan planning organizations. We have companies that are doing business in the freight sector. We have state DOTs and engineering firms that work on freight projects, even such things as uh, actual projects themselves uh, along the lines of a cluster of grade separations that are needed to uh, speed up uh, freight movement in a region.
0: Okay, so where are we now with in terms of proposals or actual action? The last we heard was the approval of uh, HR, I believe, 5021, which authorized $10.8 billion in new funds. Was that a step forward or was that just another Band-Aid?
1: Well, I think any new money is a step forward in the sense that we have to keep – The system running, and we have to keep projects moving forward. The problem, though, is that we need a long term funding solution, and we need the ability to plan large projects over a period of time that are not just patching potholes and trying to maintain a current status quo. We're growing. Uh, at a rate that requires additional investment. And, but that investment, because these projects tend to be complicated, large-scale projects, they tend to uh, frequently uh, span jurisdictional boundaries like state lines or from one city to another. So you, you really have to be able to have long-term planning and a long-term source of, of funding, which uh, we don't have at the present time.
0: Not to mention it's kind of a bizarre way of coming up with those funds in that proposal. There was some deferring the amount of corporate contributions to pension funds, getting money from underwater storage uh, tank projects. Just to come up with the money for that, that has to say something about the priority that transportation has in our world today.
1: This is where Congress has really got to starch its spine a bit and try to stand up and do the right thing. Uh, the problem is that no one wants to be uh, called out and accused of calling for tax increases. The fact is is that it's a fuel tax that is always paid for our surface transportation uh, authorizations in the past that's the gasoline and diesel motor fuel taxes and uh in the in the short term we since we have not raised that tax since nineteen ninety three and our the buying power of the tax uh, has been eroded by more than 40 percent, probably closer at this point to 50 percent less that we can do with the taxes that are coming in than we could do before. And efficiency in uh, in automobiles and uh, in, and uh, motor vehicles using gasoline has gone way up, so there's a lot less tax being paid into the system. All of this means that in the short run we have to raise the fuel taxes. It simply is common sense. And uh, if if properly explained to the public, most people would understand it. The fact is, though, is that that is not going to be sufficient in the long run. So we need additional sources of funding. And and there is a lot of smart people trying to give thought to what that could be. But it isn't going to be just closing little tiny loopholes in, and uh, patches through these kinds of gimmicks to be able to grab a little bit of money here, grab a little bit of money there, and, and plug this hole uh, in a temporary way the way the bill you're, you're talking about has done. That is just an, essentially an extension of our current service authorization to get us through to next May when, again, we'll run out of money and, again, there will be uh, probably a scramble to try to plug the hole. So we need to take big steps here and that's what Congress has to do
0: and and step one as you say is to raise the uh, the fuel tax but the fuel tax itself has some built-in problems one is that as cars become more fuel efficient the income from that tax goes down
1: right exactly the the uh, income from the tax is going down even if it were indexed to inflation we would still be uh, seeing less motor fuel, being used on average throughout the country, so yeah, that, and which is a good thing. We want to encourage that. So the idea of pegging our entire revenue for the the uh, transportation needs that we have to a fuel tax that we are trying to discourage the use of this is counterintuitive, and uh, we need to find a new source of revenue to support surface transportation
0: not to mention the growing popularity of all electric cars, which pay nothing <laughs> right. by the formula of the fuel tax. So what about a vehicle miles traveled uh, tax in place of the fuel tax? How would you feel about that?
1: Uh, I think it's a very good idea. I think that that will certainly help to stabilize the funding for these uh, some of these needs uh, over the long jump. And uh, there is a lot more flexibility in the concept of a vehicle miles traveled uh, tax than we currently have the problem is that people, um, in many cases, are afraid of it because they fear that this means the government will be tracking their movement. Um, there is a fear that, you know, actually, I might have to pay more. Well, it's possible that you would have to pay more, but you're getting a lot out of the system that we have. And uh, if it's allowed to deteriorate, it's going to cost uh, drivers and consumers a great deal more in, by dysfunction then they would be paying in a tax. So it's probably a good idea to get on board with this, and I think we can address the privacy concerns that people have about government you know, following them around.
0: What about tolling? How do you feel about that?
1: Certainly throughout the world, tolling is used much more heavily than it is in the United States as a way of paying for road infrastructure. And this makes a lot of sense. It does actually uh, help uh, enormously in terms of being able to uh, act, uh, tie the use of a road to particular users. The problem is is that I, I think that we have such an extensive free road network in the United States that's already in existence. We would have to adopt a much more extensive tolling policy to avoid a lot of negative consequences from diversion of traffic from tolled roads to non-tolled uh, side streets and so forth. So it really if we're going to adopt tolling as a as a real solution for uh funding our road network, I think we have to be looking at a, a fairly comprehensive approach to tolling and I'm not aware that many places are looking at that uh, I think that for new infrastructure for building new roads it is uh, certainly uh needs to be a tool in every state's uh, toolbox. I think there's a, a lot of possibility in terms of adding new infrastructure, but um, I, I don't think we're quite ready to use tolling extensively on existing roads and interstates. Uh, we haven't we haven't really developed a policy for that yet.
0: But you're not ph- philosophically opposed to it, you know? The argument that it's double taxation because if cars are already paying the fuel tax and then they're paying tolls on top of that, they're being taxed twice.
1: Well, you know, I don't really agree with that because I think that your fuel tax is going to pay for an awful lot of infrastructure throughout the country. And as we've said, because the fuel tax is only capturing a small part of your, your actual road use uh, out there in the public, uh, tolling as a uh, supplemental approach to uh, gaining money that can be paid for uh, specific road use is um, makes a lot of sense. Also, you may have actually paid for the, the road through your fuel taxes that is really the road construction, but ongoing maintenance has to be paid for. We have to look at the whole life, the life cycle of a road, and to some extent we really should be a lot more open to paying tolls to have well-maintained ro- roads that are not going to damage our expensive vehicles. Um, cars are really, uh, a really expensive investment for most people, and if we don't have roads that are well-maintained, uh, then, you know, that's a, that's a heavy cost for the consumer to bear.
0: How do you feel about the argument that this really should not even be addressed at the federal level, that this should be a matter for the states to handle on their own?
1: I think that if all we cared about was getting moms and dads to work and kids back and forth to school, states could probably handle the issue uh, of, of local transportation quite well on their own without federal intervention. But the fact is is that we have a national and international transportation system, and there is absolutely no way that any given state can take the kind of comprehensive approach that we need in order to facilitate movement across state boundaries from one side of the country to the other and support our national goals for uh, our economy the way that a federal uh, aid program and a federal, federally supported transportation program can Particularly for freight and goods movement, you have nodes or uh, locus of uh, freight activity that occurs in particular places around the country that may not actually have much local economic benefit or justification for state expenditures, but they have enormous national benefits and enormous justification for investment from the national uh, coffers in in those uh, freight locations that are supporting our broad economy.
0: Is it inevitable in the future that we're going to see at least some portion of private investment in infrastructure to the point of we're privatizing the whole – a large portion of this program? Or or how do you feel about that trend?
1: Well, we certainly should be seeing as much private investment as we can reasonably draw and attract into the system. Again, compared to other countries, we are doing this – much less effectively than than other countries are uh, in terms of attracting private capital. I don't worry one bit about uh, even foreign capital going uh, in, in, into investment in the United States because as far as I know, there's really no way for a foreign country to pick up a bridge and take it to their own country or in some other way nationalize a, a bridge that they've invested in. So the opportunity to attract uh, capital, whether private or foreign direct investment, uh, into our transportation system is a good thing for us overall. It shows that private capital believes in the health of the U.S. economy, that there's the, that money can help supplement state, local, and federal sources of money and leverage our public dollar, especially to the extent that uh, the the private capital can. Uh, also help contribute to a big public benefit that we all obtain from a good project that gets built.
0: One of the knocks on the Highway Trust Fund, and indeed some of those who even oppose an increase in the fuel tax to to fund it, is that there's no guarantee that the money in the trust fund is going to be used for transportation purposes. And indeed, the government has drawn on that in the past in order to help balance the budget or use the money for other purposes. How would you feel about just giving up on the whole concept of a trust fund and just drawing on general revenues to pay for transportation projects?
1: Well, the trust fund serves a... um, fairly uh, technical purpose that is very, very important. And that is that uh, because the money goes into and is dispensed out of the trust fund, it does not require uh, a congressional appropriations uh, annually in order to commit to states and localities for a stream of funding for transportation projects this allows for a much more efficient process in the contracting for uh, construction and maintenance of, of transportation infrastructure. So the trust fund has actually been a very good thing for other reasons. Now, I want to clarify one thing, and that is that the Highway Trust Fund money has actually never been um, absorbed in any other way except for transportation projects. Uh, however, uh, there is the um, high, uh, the harbor maintenance Fund, which is another form of trust fund that uh, is, uh, has to do with payments uh, by ports into a fund to pay for dredging and uh, channel maintenance at ports. And that fund has been tapped for offsets of all kinds of other uh, expenditures at the federal level. And Congress has worked somewhat this year to correct that by passing a water resources bill Uh, that it helps to address that problem. But certainly the example of the Highway Trust Fund has been a good one. It's worked quite well, and if it just had enough money in it, it would still be working quite well currently.
0: Can other countries give us any lessons about how it's done? I mean, I understand a lot of them do not themselves have trust funds and seem to be successful in in funding their own uh, transportation. Should we look to them for an example? We
1: certainly can and should in some cases. First of all, the big difference is is that virtually every single one of our trading partners of any magnitude has a national sales tax or value-added tax that is paid into the general fund, and transportation projects are funded out of the general fund. It is also true that most of our other trading partners uh, and competitors around the world have a much more centralized form of government. Canada has 13 states and those uh, or provinces. Those provinces have a great deal of control, but there is nevertheless a uh, tremendous amount of coordination from the federal level, about how the entirety of the Canadian system should be invested in. And also, of course, 13 states is a big difference between that and 50 states. So I think that uh, they have sort of the closest similar example, but uh, they do uh, pay for their transportation funding out of the general fund. We probably, if we uh, as a nation really wanted to be smart about not just transportation funding, but water uh, and sanitation projects, electric Grid, broadband, and many other needs to keep us in the world class status for the coming century. We probably should be thinking about some form of a national value added tax or something of that nature. But uh, I realize that that's a that's a, I, I'm I'm probably in a very tiny minority in suggesting that idea.
0: Okay, we've been talking in an aspirational sense this entire time, and now I'm asking you to put on your political reality hat. Look at the fact that we're coming up to another presidential election. Look at the fact that there's still anathema uh, with regard to raising taxes of any kind, that there's huge divisions in Congress, and it's in a state of gridlock, and it looks to be no solution to that in a larger sense. Is there any hope realistically at all?
1: Oh, yes. I think there's always hope. This is something that I think that the American public needs to help create that hope by telling their elected officials that they value good, efficient, uh, cost-effective investment in infrastructure that helps support their own communities and that helps support our national economy as a whole. And I think that when elected officials hear this, they get a lot more courage in terms of trying to address these problems. I know that a lot of people do think of transportation issues as being just a little piece of the whole system that they use. But the fact is is that every single uh, product they buy, everything that's on their shelves, even if you attempt to buy locally, much of the infrastructure that helps support our national economy has contributed to the availability of those, those products in, in your own lo- neighborhood stores. So we, we need to be thinking in these terms and we need to be able to, uh, to, to support this. As a collective effort, and I think there is hope, I think that there is also a growing recognition among both the Congress and certainly among the governors and among state legislatures as well that these are, there are overriding national needs that are built into our Constitution. The Commerce Clause of the Constitution basically tells uh, uh, the federal government that it is the role of the federal government to support the infrastructure that uh, allows for our national commerce.
0: Well, we can only hope. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Leslie, for taking the time to speak with us about your views of the infrastructure crisis and some uh, ways in which it can be solved. Leslie Blakey, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Bob.
0: is my conversation with Leslie Blakey of the Coalition for America's Gateways and Trade Corridors. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch nearly 2,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. And you can now subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, where all of our episodes are now available. Just search for Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Got any comments or suggestions? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.